Hey everyone, I am Reva and just want to take a moment and thank you for listening to our studio podcast. Although we are here in Greenville, South Carolina, we are grateful for your support to see the message of Jesus go out all over the world. In case you are not aware, we have a YouTube channel, which you can find the link in our podcast bio. We hope you enjoy this week's talk and it encourages you and it helps you to be the human God designed you to be. So with that, let's get right to it. You know, as you know, I I stand up here almost every week and I share something that is deeply meaningful to me. And whether it's been meaningful to me for 20 years or for one day, I, I, I do what I can best to communicate, articulate things in my heart. And I just want to give you a little bit of a sneak peek behind the scenes. I'm always wrestling with what kind of talk should I do? I know you probably don't care a lot about this, but I want to tell you about this to set the stage for today's talk. I'm wrestling with what kind of approach, what kind of angles. And if you don't know this by now, I think in layers, I think in dimensions, I think in colors, I think in, I think in multiple angles. Uh, for some reason, I can see things more like a hologram. You just change it a little bit, you see something different. You see something unique. You see something that maybe you haven't seen in a while or maybe you've never seen in a while. There's actually scripture in the Bible that talks about there's these angels that are surrounding the throne of God. And these angels are saying, holy, holy, holy. I remember the child growing up in the church, I would hear that verse and I thought to myself, that's got to be the most boringest job in all of the universe or in the multiverses. I mean, they're just sitting there looking at God and all you have to do or supposed to do is to say holy for all of eternity. I was like, I do not want that job. Uh, That's the last job on earth I would want. And I hope that if I make it to heaven, that's not the assignment. I remember thinking that as a child, maybe not that, that detail, but I remember thinking that's lame. I don't want to do that. But as I got older, as I began to experience God, not because of my parents' faith, or not because of what my youth pastor told me, or not because even the friends around me and their faith, when I begin to come more into the reality of what is my faith, what does faith in my relationship with God look like? When I was able to begin to separate, begin to pull out the parts of my journey with God that wasn't because of my mom or my dad or because of who I was surrounded with, when I was able to get into face-to-face with, this is actually my relationship. This is not a, a relationship with God because of the faith that I was raised in or the tradition that I was raised in. And as I begin to experience more of God, as I begin to experience Him, not as this cosmic being, as this this thing that's just kind of out there. And when he's angry, he shows up. And then when he's happy, he goes away. When I begin to understand that God is so much more than that, my own construct at that point, begin to realize that I was so busy performing for God. I was so busy putting my act together so that he would be happy with me. And that that became the definition of my faith for a long time. Some of you are familiar with the story in the scriptures. We're talking about the prodigal son. It's actually more about the prodigal God. It's actually more about God, the father, than it is about the older son and the younger brother. 
And I remember growing up, and even to this day, I wrestle with, man, I feel like I got a lot of the older brother stuff going on, and then I definitely got some younger brother stuff going on. But in my own journey, in my own faith, as I became more aware of who God is, not because someone told me, but because of what I've experienced, I begin to realize probably the thing I want to do for all of eternity is to be near that throne. Because those angels are not doing it out of obligation. They're not doing it out of, I'm supposed to or I have to. They're doing it because they are looking at the most beautiful, infinite, never-ending beauty of God. Some people believe that when the angels are bowing down and saying holy, when they look up back up at him again, that he actually reveals another part of his nature. So they bow down and they say, holy, holy, holy. Uh, our version today would be OMG, OMG. I know holy sounds so Christian, sounds so sacred, but just make it real for you. Whatever that word, when you are shocked by something, whatever word comes out of your mouth, at least specific words, that's what's happening here. They are shocked. They are in awe. They are in absolute loss of words because of what they're looking at. And today I want to kind of hone in on something in regard to the Christmas story where this is Christmas week, next Sunday is Christmas Eve, and we're all going to do the festivities and things that we do. And, and so today I want to hone in on some scripture and kind of talk about some of the peripheral things that are going on that highlight what's happening in the life of Jesus leading up into his birth. But there is one moment right after his birth that I want to spend some time on. You know, we live in the Greenville area, and this area was known for a long time as the textile center of the South. This place, the industry, the economy was built around the ability to make textile, to make fabric, to make cloth, to make beautiful things. And I'm not an expert or understand weaving, but what I do understand is that when you weave threads together, it makes the cloth. And it's just amazing, and it actually one of the oldest art forms known to man is weaving. And so as you study and you look at that, you begin to see that the ability to weave threads together to make something that has a much bigger context then as technology advanced and as humanity advanced, we begin to make these massive machines. In fact, the building we are in today had major machines that were powered by that oven. There's two ovens in the building across the parking lot. I was actually able to go look at those ovens before they tore them down. And there's a smokestack, and that was the exhaust system for the power that was generated just to run these machines to make fabric. And if you're unfamiliar with the area, from what we've gathered, there was at least 20 or so different major mills that all they did was create fabric. So weaving in this amazing thing of taking a thread and taking multiple threads and putting it together, the clothes that we wear today was a series of multiple threads. It wasn't one thread. If you want a seamless garment, that's expensive. But all of our clothing that we wear were multiple threads that a machine took and was able to interweave it. And as we look at the life of Jesus, I want you to, I want you to see a few things. I want you to understand the, the Bible. Some of you have an actual Bible in your hand. Others of you have an app or a tablet of some form. And 
That book is one of the most remarkable books. Did you know it still is the number one best-selling book of all time? Nothing even comes close to it. It continued to be the bestseller. It is the most, it is the most read book in the world as well. Ironically, it's the most stolen book in the world. Wonder what they did when they came upon the Ten Commandments. I remember when I was 13, I was on a trip. We smuggled Bibles into China. I was responsible for smuggling hundreds of Bibles, 13 years old. You know, that frontal lobe is not fully developed, so it's a great time to do stuff like that. <laughs> and our handlers, the people that our guide were telling us what to do, they said, listen, when you smuggle these Bibles in, I mean, I want you to picture this with me. I remember getting on a train, going, we're in Hong Kong. This was before it was taken back over by communist China. This was in 1990, 1991. And you get on this train and you go to the border of China and then you go through customs. And you are instructed, and you're 13 years old, and you're carrying these abnormally large bags that are incredibly heavy. And they're just full of Bibles. And they say, when you get to the customs, look at no one from your team. Look at no Westerner. Because they're looking to see who you're making eye contact with. So you're trying to be natural about this. You're trying to be chill about it but yet you're paranoid out of your mind because you're on the other side of the world and you don't know what's going to happen, what can happen if you get caught. And for the boys, for the guys, we had this belt that we wear around our torso underneath our garments, our clothing. And so you wore kind of looser clothing and it had pockets and you put the Bible in these pockets and then it would tie in the back. And so you just kind of wear looser clothing for, for the girls or the women, they underneath their skirts, their dresses, they would have another skirt. And their Bibles would be put in the pockets. And so you were carrying bags and suitcases of Bibles, and you were wearing Bibles. I mean, it was, it was a scene. And I remember for me, my first time in walking the custom, that top tie on that torso thing I was wearing was coming loose which meant that the top edge of the Bible was now pushing up against my shirt. It was very clear I had something to hide. Long story short, they get, we get on the other side and we get, go to this cab and they take it to the apartment building. It's just, it just a surreal scene when I replay it in my mind. I'm like, what were my parents thinking? <laughs> and to be honest with you, they were really smart to send us on this experience. Because we were told by our handlers that what they do with Bible is they rip pages out and they spread. That's how they spread. That's how the gospel, the Bible spreads so quickly. And they said one page will be memorized by potentially up to 100 different people. So take the pages of a Bible times 100. That's a lot of impact. It would be a little sad if you got like numbers. <laughs> Jesus is the hope of all humanity. All I've got is names. <laughs> so imagine when you got numbers and then one day you ended up with Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. You'd be like, okay, now we're talking. Now we're talking. But I want you to understand something. When you study scripture, you need to understand something. The Bible is a collection of writings from approximately around 40 different authors written over roughly 1,500 to 1,600 years on three different continents, Asia, Europe, and Africa, in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. 
The complexity of this, it is one of the most complex and yet somehow one of the most simplest books to read. It's complex because none of these authors, for the most part, never interacted with each other. And yet, it's one of the most continual storylines in any book ever written and known to man. The continual storyline continues true. The accuracy level is unbelievable. And yet it was written by 40 different people over the span of about 1,500 to 1,600 years in three different languages on three different continents in multiple cultures, multiple emotional experiences, multiple social statuses, multiple life experiences. And yet when you put the scriptures together, you see this continual theme from page one to the very end. There's an infographic I want you to look at. If you can go ahead and put that up. Some of you may have seen this recently. This is uh, one of the most fascinating graphics that you'll ever see. This graphic you're looking at actually represents 63,779 cross-references in Scripture. The bottom, you'll see the gray and white colored lines that drop down. Those are different chapters and verses in Scripture. And the gradient represents something else. But I want you to notice that in the Bible, if you're unfamiliar with cross-referencing, some of you have scripture where the center column has other references pointed to a verse you just read. Cross-referencing is one of the most beautiful things about scripture is that you can read a story, a person, an image, or a word, and it can cross-reference. It's a way to study the Bible without anything external. And this is one of the most amazing graphics. What I want you to understand is look how much cross-referencing is taking place throughout the entirety of scripture. Notice how much cross-referencing from the connection from the beginning of Scripture to the end of Scripture. And then as you get farther down the rainbows, you begin to see how they're cross-referencing with tighter, within the tighter parts of Scripture. I want you to see this. I want you to understand something. When we talk about Christmas, when we talk about the birth of Jesus, you can't isolate it to just a couple chapters at the beginning of the Gospels. You have to understand this is one of the most important moments in the context of 63,000 plus cross-references. This is the central theme in scripture written by 40 different authors in three different languages on three different continents. This idea of Jesus coming to earth was not a new idea. It is written throughout scripture. In fact, the first prophecy can be found in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. And it's when Adam and Eve sinned and God comes and talks to them about what a grave mistake they made. And in that moment, he said, a seed will come from Eve and he will smash the head of a snake and it will bruise his heel. That's the first note about the coming of Jesus right after the fall of man. What I want you to understand is that the birth of Jesus is so much bigger than just gathering around a Christmas tree. It is the answer to every existential question humans have ever asked. Jordan Peterson actually said this about the Bible. He said, the Bible is the first hyperlinked text to ever be written. Some scholars tell us that there were over 300 prophecies just about Jesus in the Old Testament alone. So as you read the life of Jesus... You see, there are these moments that he was previously prophesied to where he would be born, what lineage he would be from, 
all the way to the fact that he'd be given gift at his birth. There were prophecies, there were, there were telltale signs early on, centuries before, pointing to this reality of Jesus coming. And I want you to understand that much like the weaving of fabric, God is weaving the story of Jesus throughout all of human history to this point where we celebrate his birth. I want you to understand the depth and the gravity of who Jesus was and is. If you have your Bible, the knee read it as we transition worship, but I want to read it with you. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. We're going to read one of the, one of the more familiar passages that when we talk about the coming of Jesus. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is one of those moments that Isaiah many years before, begins to get an idea of who's coming, of who's coming. The entire government will be on his shoulders, the Prince of Peace, the wonderful counselor. And then as we get into the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1 is a fascinating chapter because the first part starts off with genealogies. How, how many honestly skip over genealogies when you read Scripture? Be honest with me. A lot of you do. And I know you've read it at times and other times, like when you get there, you just kind of jump it and you get to the other, other part of the story. But I want you to look at genealogy a little bit differently today, that it's the weaving of threads throughout human history to emphasize what's about to take place. You read about these names and you're, you're blown that God would use this individual that an offspring of Ruth would be Jesus. And then why did God say David would be the lineage for King Jesus? All of a sudden you begin to see this thread being woven throughout human history. The tapestry of heaven is being displayed in human. Genealogies are God's way of saying, look, I've been weaving the story of redemption and healing through humanity. I've been using, some people didn't work out great, but they still played a role is seeing the coming and the birth of Jesus. So when you read genealogies, understand that it's God's way of saying, listen, through humanity, I'm going to bring healing. And then as you get into the rest of chapter one, it's the birth of Jesus. Talked about Mary being visited by the Holy Spirit and she becomes pregnant with Jesus and Joseph wants to to bail. He wants to get out because this is a really awkward situation. An angel showed up to Joseph and said, listen, don't go. This is by my hand. I need you to stay with her. And Joseph is one of the most under-celebrated men in scripture. We give him a hard time because he wanted to bail. But listen, all of, all, all of us would bail. If that was us, we'd be like, we out. But angel came and Joseph stayed and then we get into Matthew 2, and the first 12 verses is about the wise men. And this is what I want to kind of hone in today as we, as we land this conversation. The wise men come, and King Herod was the king over the region at that point. And Herod knew that there was a son being born that was labeled the king, the king of the Jews. And when you're a king, 
and another king is coming your way, you're threatened by that. And so Herod, Herod sends out wise men. He said, go find out where this king is. And what are wise men? They're mystics. A lot of them think they were involved in some other spirituality that wouldn't line up with the Jewish tradition. And they set foot, most likely in camels, and walked across the Middle East. And somehow a star led them toward the birth of Jesus. And they come into the space where Jesus was born. And they recognize this is the fulfillment of what we've been hearing up until this point. And in that moment, they give them gifts, frankincense, gold, and myrrh. Which is interesting because those are valuable gifts that many believe is what sustained Jesus and Mary and Joseph for the next few years. In Matthew, it doesn't mention the shepherds in chapter 1 and 2, but in the other gospel, it talked about these shepherds, these men that were out working, minding their own business, literally. And the angels come and make the announcement and say, the king had been born. Go to Bethlehem. And I love what the shepherds do. They don't just celebrate in this field. They begin to let everyone know about the king. And they go in, and I love the response. And I want to highlight something today. What happened when you hear about the birth of Jesus deep in your heart? Is there a response in your soul? Or is it just a mental acknowledgement? Yep, Jesus was born. I want to challenge you today. Like, the status of your heart can often be seen by how you respond to good news the same good news over and over. And for some of you, you've been following Jesus for a length of time now. This is not your first rodeo. But I want to challenge you. Does the the announcement of the birth of Jesus, does it still create a response of worship? Or has Jesus become something static? He's become something that just, this is what I do and I'm not supposed to do. Has Jesus become this religious institution to you? Or is Jesus a personal relationship to you? So after all of this takes place, I want you to meet me in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. We're going to read a couple of scriptures here, and we're going to talk about something here that I believe is a beautiful aspect of this story. In Matthew 2, verse 13. Now when they had departed... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother. Flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Let's stop right here. This is one of those moments, another prophecy made by a man in the Old Testament said, out of Egypt, I will call my son. And here's the fulfillment of it. Out of Egypt, I will call my son. Now go to verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Let's stop right there. So after Jesus was born and Herod began to realize and the wise men, when they came to meet Jesus, they were visited and were told Herod, Herod going to kill Jesus. So they went a different direction. 
So as the story transpires and Herod realizes, which is roughly two years later, he realizes that he had been deceived by his own wise men. So he sends out a decree. He said, I want all the two-year-old male newborn to be killed. Joseph is alerted by an angel that said, flee, go to Egypt. What I find so fascinating, Egypt, in the context of history, is the last place you go for safety. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but Egypt is where they kept the nation of Israel in slavery and bondage for centuries. The Jewish people were in bondage and slavery for centuries. And God said, you're going to go back there for safety. I don't know what there is in this, but sometimes the place that caused the most pain is, pain is also the place that brings redemption. I'm going to try this side. Some of the places in your life that have caused you the most pain, the most despair, the most oppression that you've ever experienced in life, that can also be the place that God says, that's where you're going to find safety. That's where you're going to find refuge. That's where you're going to find you actually have a future. So don't be shocked when you find yourself back in those spaces that cause incredible pain. Incredible despair. In the context of history, Joseph knew this is where you don't go. Could those people oppress my people for centuries? But Joseph, his options were limited. Sometimes God reduces your option down to none and only one, and it makes you look like a genius in the end. And in reality, there was no other option. The beauty how the, the, the algorithm of heaven works is God sets you up that you only have one choice. And then in the end, he said, that's my man of faith right there. That girl, she is a woman of faith. And you're like, I don't, my only option. I had nothing else to do. I love how the math of God works. One plus one to us is two, but one plus the one plus one plus one to God is like, you know what? That's a million. Okay, that's a million. I don't understand it, but there's something here. I want you to just sit with me for a moment. The last place on earth you would go for refuge and protection is Egypt. And so for two years, they lived in Egypt. Two years. Different culture, different custom, different people, different languages. Different. Now, they say the first two to three years of a, a child's life is some of the most formative they say zero to eight is really some of the most formative years of a child's life. But what's interesting about the first two years of a child's life, 80% of the brain reaches its size by the time they turn two or three of its adult size. There are so much activity. The child's able to learn and absorb so much information. And I know a lot of us in this room, we recognize that things that happen in our childhood affects us today. And I want to propose to you that Jesus began to recognize as a young child and toddler, he didn't belong there. He was an exile. He was an outcast. Jesus' first few years of life was an outcast. Some would even say he was a refugee. That's formative. That shapes you. That shapes the way you think. 
That shapes the way you interpret the world. That shapes your emotions. That shapes the way you walk and live and be. And it's fascinating when we look at the life of Jesus, we find out he remains an outcast through the entirety of his life. But what's beautiful about that, because he was an outcast, he understood an outcast. Because he was the out crowd, he understood the out crowd. He wasn't the child picked on the playground. And because of that, he understood what it's like to not be picked on the playground. You see, Jesus was a man that understood the fringe and margins of society. You cannot understand what it's like to be on the outcast, on the outside, if you've never actually been on the outside. So it's no shock that Jesus is constantly touching people that don't belong. He's interacting with people that are not supposed to be a part of society. This is Jesus. And I want to propose to you, we have a couple options here. Maybe you're the kid that always got picked on the playground. Some of you like, yeah, that was me. I was always the, the one at the top of the class. I was always the star athlete. I was the smartest one. I was the intelligent one. I actually don't even know what it's like to be on the outside. And other of you are like, no, I'm Jesus. That part of Jesus resonates with me. I felt like a foreigner my entire life. I don't belong here. The beauty of that is for those of you that don't feel like you belong here and you feel like a foreigner, guess what? You have an opportunity to live a life that Jesus lived perfectly. And that was to understand what it means to be an outcast. Guess what? You get to carry the mission of Jesus into society. Instead of protecting yourself from never experiencing that again, why don't you open yourself up and go touch the fringes and the margins of society? You were designed for that. There's a resonance. I love how when people try to talk to me about parenting and they only have a three-year-old. The moment our conversations start, I'm like, this is so much dissonance. Why? Because they have no context in history yet. They got three years of it, but that's it. A lot happened after three years old. A lot happened in teenage years. A lot happened in young adult. Now, I can't go past young adult right now. That's as far as my experience. That is as far as my contact of being a dad at the age of 24. That's it. Don't talk to me about 25, 30, 40-year-olds. I have no idea what that's like yet to be a parent of that. But I know very well what it's like to raise a child to 24 years old. So you can talk to me all day long, and you're going to resonate with me. Why? Because I have experience. But if you talk to me about raising a 15-year-old and you have a 2-year-old, there's so much dissonance, there will be no connection. When you've been on the outcast, when you've been on the outside, when you talk to people on the outside, guess what? There's resonance. It may not be the words you speak. It'll be the thing that comes out of you that they will sense and feel. You have one of the greatest opportunities in all of humanity right now, because right now so many people feel like they're on the outside. Guess who's responsible, who has the privilege to go reach humanity? You do. Are you guys with me today? What I want you to get today is Jesus understands what it means to be an exile, to be an outcast. And the very place of the pain and oppression that you've experienced could also be the very places where you find refuge, you find safety, you find healing. 
So as we move towards Christmas this coming weekend, as we move to celebrating the life of Jesus, my heart today was just to get you to look at the bigger picture. In fact, I think the title of this talk is going to be 63,779. In reference to the amount of cross-references to validate and to show you the depth and the beauty of the story of the Bible. It's so much bigger than just one moment. It actually is connected to everything. So why don't you stand? Thanks for listening to today's talk. If you're interested in learning more about Studio here in Greenville, you can go check out our website, studiogreenville.com. And you can give us a follow on Instagram. Our handle is studio.greenville. Have a great week.